Well, the fact that the property increased by a significant amount doesn't mean that you qualify to take all of the money out. Again, it's a function of your income, your credit. Are you a real estate investor looking to sharpen your skills or a newbie looking to become one? You're in the right place. Welcome to Where Should I Invest? Real Estate Investing in Canada with your host, Sarah Larby. Welcome back. It's Sarah Larby. You are listening to Where Should I Invest? Today, I have a special episode with the one and only Dahlia Barsoom. She is my mortgage broker that has helped me retire back in 2020 and uh, helped me scale my portfolio. And uh, today, we talk about the seven dumb ways to die in real estate investing financing and we go through those seven ways or seven things not to do so that you can keep scaling and don't go down the other way so i hope you guys enjoy today's podcast also there are a few spots left for the health wealth time for self retreats at the resort on august 9th 10th and 11th everything is included lodging transportation food beverages activities. We're going to have some amazing speakers. Send me a message if you are interested in attending and I can send you the link at either sarah at sarahlarby.com or you can send me a message on Instagram, which is investor Sarah Larby. I hope you guys enjoy the podcast and try and avoid the seven dumb ways to die so that you can continue scaling your portfolio. On that note, I hope you guys enjoy the show. Dahlia, welcome back. How are you? I'm great, Sarah. How are you? Good, good. I mean, thank you first and foremost for all your support. I really enjoy working with you. And I, uh, I also see all the progress, not only that you've, you've done and, and helped me with, but even just people listening to this, um, letting me know that they've reached out and how much you've helped them. So thank you for all your support. It's my pleasure. I love working with investors and what energizes me is seeing people succeed and making progress. So I love it. Amazing. So we are going to cover something really different today. We are going to talk about, I know. <laughs> we are going to talk about the dumb ways to die in real estate financing. And we're going to go through a list. The dumb mm -hmm. ways to die is a very, very interesting. I'm actually very curious to see what is on this list. But before we do that, like maybe you could share, I know you're a real estate investor as well and you've got a portfolio, but how long have you been working with investors, helping them with financing? 11 years now. Okay, so you've seen it all. You've seen, you've seen the good, you've seen the bad, you've probably seen the ugly and you're like, oh my God, how, how did this happen? <laughs> <laughs> yes, definitely. I see a lot behind the scene and I wanted to put it out. Because, you know, on social media, we all see the success stories, the rosy picture, but there is an ugly part to financing. And I wanted to put it out there because uh, sometimes investors don't recognize it. They get into things without thinking it through and right. they end up being fatal. And that's what I call the dumb way to die the dumb ways to die. Yeah. And I think too, even with all of the uncertainty in 2022, as we're recording this and releasing this is that it's so important to really 
strategize because at any time, right, rates are going to be going up at some point. How many, how often, I, we don't know. Um, and, and likely the government's going to start implementing a few things to make it a little bit tougher. So this is a good, you know, a good list to go through right now as, as we prepare for, you know, probably an uncertain two to five more years ahead of us, depending on what the aftermath looks like. 100%. So, so obviously you've been doing this for 11 years. You, you've scaled portfolios. You've helped people maneuver through the different lender types. And, you know, I enjoy that you, you're talking about the ugly of real estate investing because on social media, it's all the great stuff, the before and afters. And there's lots, of, I, I will tell you the majority, majority of it is, is amazing, but I'll tell you that 20 to 30% really sucks, regardless of, of who you are. The bigger you are, the bigger problems. It's just a bad matter of mindset, I think, at the end of the day. But let's not make these dumb decisions and the dumb ways to die in real estate financing. So let's go through your list. So what is on your list, Dahlia? Okay, so I've got seven uh, ways to die on my list. The first one is taking on so much debt. Very, very high leverage on the financing side, without really thinking through the implications and thinking through the exit strategy. I love creative financing. And we as brokers understand creative financing, vendor take backs, high leverage, joint venture money, other people's money. And there is a way to actually utilize that tool along with your traditional mortgages. But what I've seen sometimes happen is that investors get excited about buying properties with nothing in the deal. And they you know, go into the deal with creative financing and put nothing in the deal, which is, which is fine. But the key is exit strategy. How are we going to exit any expensive money that we get, especially if we're going to take on a lot of that money? So I've seen some investors take on a high amount of debt, assuming they're going to be able to pay it back. And if one thing goes wrong, like, you know, delayed renovations or the market turns or the rates go higher or, 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 okay, then that's when things start to, you know, go the other way. And that is one area where investors need to be very careful about the tools that they use and they need to validate, truly validate, not just say, oh, you know what, I'm going to take on this private money and I should be, I should be able to refinance. No, you should not be able to refinance. You need to validate and confirm that you will refinance. And only once you get that confirmation, then understand what you're stepping into. And that's one area where I see investors sometimes make mistakes. Yeah. Exiting hard money, private money. I mean, private money, I mean, you, you can get private money anywhere. I, I think the average probably right now is like anywhere between like six to, to 15% and, you know, some a little bit lower, some a little bit more depending on what it is, but, but it is expensive. And so you don't want to be hanging on to that and just using it as a 20% as the down payments and, you know, not having a way to exit or you do hundred percent loan to value with a buy and hold, right? These do require some renos, some lift, some something in order to push the value up. And so when you're talking about like even just the exit, right? So like you could refinance, if not, could you, could you potentially sell, but what is something that they can do or somebody listening to this could do before they purchase in order to ensure that they are going to be able to exit? Okay, so a key step is what we call planning financing. We are so big on planning financing. What do I mean by that? I mean, sitting down with a mortgage broker who understands income property financing and validating 
what your exit strategy looks like. So let's say you're buying a property for 500,000 and you plan to take, you know, a very high leverage position to actually purchase it. Let's say someone is willing to give you give you a big loan on that property as a private loan. We want to make sure that if you're going to renovate it and increase the value that you will be able to turn around qualify for a refinance big enough to pay off that private money. Because here's the thing with refinances on specially renovated properties, depending on how you as an investor qualify, some lenders may do it in three months, some lenders may do it in six months, some lenders may want to see a year, and some lenders may not touch the property depending on where it's located. If it's especially if it's a B lender, they're a lot more particular about location. So my biggest tip is before you jump into private money getting into private money is very easy guys there is a lot of private money sitting around and you know you can get into a private deal so easily but plan and validate that you can exit this money and pay it back in the time frame that you envision if you're going to flip the property not a big deal you don't need to worry about it as much because you know you're going to get rid of the property and assuming it's not going to sit on the market for for long that should be fine but if you're planning on keeping it validate your exit. Yeah. And, and also like if somebody can only qualify for, I don't know, let's just call it 500,000 just for simple math. And all of a sudden the after repair value of that property is a million dollars, you know, then, then there's a little bit of, of struggle right there. Right. Because you may not be able to qualify for the whole refinance. You might have to go to a different type of lender. Any thoughts on, or insights on that that you can share? Well, the fact that the property increased by a significant amount doesn't mean that you qualify to take all of the money out. Again, it's a function of your income, your credit, where the property is located, your debts, uh, a lot of things that the lenders look at. So uh, again, the assumption that I'm going to increase the value by this much and I will be able to turn around as soon as I'm done and refinance it at 80% at a two point something rate, these, this, this, is, this is where things can go wrong. We got to validate these statements before we jump into the deal. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey, everyone. I just wanted to pause and share with you a financing tip that helped me scale my portfolio and can also help you as well. By working with Streetwise Mortgages, I took a strategic goals-based versus a transactional approach to financing, and they've helped me develop a financing roadmap that aligned with my goals and gave me some crystal clear clarity on where the money will come from to grow, how to maximize my borrowing power, how to structure future deals and avoid some costly mistakes, saving me thousands along the way. The financing roadmap is complimentary for every client who works with Streetwise and also very recently they've offered an additional summary report of the best to invest 18 Ontario markets and also a comprehensive deep dive research into a market of your choice out of those 18. I highly recommend that you take them up on that offer. If you're looking to grow your portfolio, to book a planning session and develop your financing roadmap, email info at streetwisemortgages.com. That is info at streetwisemortgages.com. Thanks for listening. And now back to the show. And now back to the show. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So work with a mortgage broker like Dahlia that can help you from the start so that you know how you are exiting. So that was That was number one. What is the number two dumbest way to die in real estate financing? Uh, Number two is about uh, buying a property with 5% down and uh, using that as a creative strategy for rental properties. So we all know that when you buy a a property that you intend to live in or you're going to live in, 
you can potentially qualify to buy it with less than 20% down. That's the insured program. It is not a strategy to buy rental properties with, okay? Because here's, here's what happens. Um, what happens when someone buys a property with a 5% down and they don't actually occupy it, uh, that's considered mortgage fraud. It's not creative strategy, that's mortgage fraud. And unfortunately, sometimes the, uh, if, if it happens and, and someone is not informed, um, mortgage insurers randomly go and do audits on files with lenders all the time. There are random audits in, with lenders, you know, auditing broker files, auditing client files, all the time. So uh, an insurer can actually go and audit a file randomly and they can go look in Google or rental boards and see if a property got rented soon after it closed or within a short time period. And if it does, they have the right to pull the mortgage. And I had actually somebody approach us saying, guys, I just got a notice. Unfortunately, you know, uh, I purchased a property with less than 20% down and I have, uh, I got to pay this mortgage back in a very short, short time period. So it's a, it's a real issue that is mortgage fraud and nobody should take the 5% down. The 5% down is really not a creative strategy. It's really intended for properties that will be owner occupied. And, and here's the thing, as much as there are many lenders on the street, Sarah, all of the lenders for insured mortgages go and deal with three mortgage insurers. So if someone, someone's file gets marked, okay, with one mortgage insurer, this is a very small community and it will impact their reputation in the investment space, in, in the lending space, sorry. Therefore, I do not look at this as a creative approach. You wanna buy a rental property, buy it with a 20% down. And yes, there are creative ways to actually lower your down payment, but it's not the 5% down insurance strategy. Yeah, you don't want to get caught with that. The other thing too, that I don't think a lot of people know is like, let's just say you are moving into it and you are going to house hack and do some renovations on the refi. You can't refi at 5%, right? Is that right? So you can only refi it with 20% still or 80% loan to value on the refi. So you're basically leaving an extra 15% in. Yes. Yes. On a purchase, you can get in with a 5% on a refinance. It's always 80%. Right. So it only really works for some strategies like a buy and hold or something along those lines. Because if you're planning on burring and you want to refi at 5% again, good luck. <laughs> exactly. Unless the lift is so significant right. that, you know, you refinance at 80% and you pay off the original mortgage plus the insurance premium that got onto it, uh, that got added to it and walk away with additional money. That's like a phenomenal Burr. It's, you know, in 2022, that is almost impossible to do. I mean, I'm not saying it's not possible, but almost impossible. <laughs> yeah, I haven't seen deals, uh, you know, with that lift in 2022 yet. Awesome. So number two, obviously careful with the 5%. You don't want to get caught. You don't want to be red flagged. It is a small industry and, uh, you know, just if, if you are moving into it, just keep that in mind. If you're planning on refinancing while well, you're not refinancing with still 95% loan to value, you're refinancing with 80% loan to value or less, depending. All right. So what is number three? Number three is thinking that a pre-approval is an actual approval. So here's the thing. There is a difference between a pre-approval and a pre-qualification. A pre-approval is 
someone taking some quick numbers and putting them into a calculator and saying, here is what you qualify for. That's a pre-approval. A pre-qualification is tooth combing the documents as if we have a real deal in place. So someone says, oh, my income is $100,000. Okay, great. You know what? Let me see your tax returns. If you're self-employed, maybe you're making 100,000 in your company, but on your personal returns, you're drawing less from the company. Therefore, the A lenders are gonna take a much smaller percentage versus the B lenders. That's not 100,000. That's a different number that we have to work with. So and a, a pre-approval is just take that 100,000, plug it into a calculator, you know, along with the debts and tell me what I qualify for. A pre-qualification is, us reviewing all of the documents that the lenders would actually take a look at when a deal happens, but reviewing it early in the process and validating, you know, everything from how much you would qualify for, is your down payment good, um, how are we going to structure the deal, like getting into the nitty gritty details so that when you go in and you have a deal sealed, there are no surprises later on. Right. So get the pre-qualification. Don't just rely on the pre-approval. Yes. So what about like um, pre-construction? Because obviously I think there's a misconception there where people are buying pre-constructions thinking that like they're good to go, but and maybe closes in three years. Thoughts on that? Insights on that? Yes. So um, with pre-construction, most lenders, okay, most lenders with the exception of the lender that is typically on the builder side, okay, or RBC, as far as I know, would give you a firm approval. So you got a, you got a property that's going to close in three years. They will look at your finances today, make sure that you get an approval. So there are no conditions in that approval, say conditional and this, conditional and that. It's called a firm approval. So if your situation changes between now and the time the uh, property is built, right? You don't have to reapply for the loan. Well, if you go just outside of the lenders that are on the builder site, um, you will get an approval. It's conditional, but when the time comes for this property to close, you have to requalify again. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, obviously, you know, just knowing where you are going and, uh, and who you're doing that with, I think the other thing too, and I don't know if this is, this is true or not, but if you go to RBC and, and you get them to give you the, you know, green, green light for, you know, something that's closing in three years, if you're buying something with RBC prior, I think they have visibility to see that as well. So potentially it might affect your, pre-approval or, or potentially your, your current new purchase. Like, I don't know if, if you know much about that. Yeah. I mean, you still got to be strategic uh, as to how to approach the lenders and where to go, because mm -hmm. if a lender has a pre-approval on their system, although the property has not closed and you're buying a property today, right? They're going to account for that into their numbers. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. So that was, that was number three or four? That was number three. All right. So what is number four of the dumbest ways to die? Uh, number four is financing or leasing a car before the conditions, uh, the lender conditions are cleared on a file. So let's say you uh, get a mortgage approval for a refinance or a purchase and uh, we're getting the file, you know, 
prepared for closing and somehow you come across a great card deal <laughs> you decide you want to take it on and lease it or purchase it and you know the payment starts to show on the credit report so the lender has not yet cleared the conditions on the file and they're you know looking at credit and uh, this payment shows if there is a payment that wasn't accounted for in the initial approval it will have an impact on the deal maybe it would it would do nothing if if your lending ratios are you know roomy enough but it could turn a deal from an approved to decline or it could or it could reduce the loan the loan amount or it could shift the lender altogether so i always encourage clients not to go and add any new fixed payments to their balance sheet until their deal has closed and always always consult with your mortgage broker you know if you're planning on leasing a car or if you're planning on buying a car and you have future plans after the current deal at hand discuss how is this going to impact you how does this change the picture very very important yeah for sure i'm just curious like how often do you see that or do you just make sure that people don't um i make sure, I make sure people don't but it happened once with a client he um as much as we told them told them not to do anything like this uh they ran a business and they applied for a car loan under their business and they were told that it's okay it's under the business it's not going to show on the credit report but they personally guaranteed the loan and although they applied for this loan under the business it did show up on their credit report yeah. And then you're kind of scrambling, right? Last minute to try to figure out, you know, is this the right lender now? Is this not the right lender? Do they have to come up with more down payment and just stresses everybody out? Right. So when you've yeah. got something closing, you know, no car payments, no boat payments, no, you know, other types of, of uh, new property payments in between and just kind of, you know, do the, do the one based on, you know, on the mortgage broker discussion that you've had. Um, yeah. what, so that's good for number four. What about number five? Number five is dealing with multiple mortgage brokers simultaneously during a deal. So this is the wrong way to shop, okay, for, for approvals or for rates. Some clients think, okay, let me talk to multiple mortgage brokers, have them all work so hard for me to get my deal approved at the best, best terms possible. Unfortunately, this is shooting, you know, yourself in the foot because here's what happens. All mortgage brokers pretty much deal with a core group of lenders. As much as there are a lot of lenders on the street, there is a core group of lenders a lot of mortgage brokers go to. So if the lender gets the same deal at their desk from two different brokers for the same client, that actually creates a bad impression at the lender's desk. It, it kind of takes away from, um, from, from the quality of the deal, okay? Num number one. Number two, um, Mortgage brokering, as much as we deal with numbers and the numbers are the numbers are the numbers, positioning the deal and structuring the deal is actually an art. We structure deals in a way so that we mitigate risks for the lenders. We tell the story in a way that makes the lender comfortable. We make sure we use, you know, the best market trends, the best values through appraisers and all of that to position the deal to the benefit, of course, of the client, but while protecting the lender. Now, if Another broker positions the deal differently. Now we've messed, like the story's messed up. And it, it, so mm -hmm. it, the client is not really shopping the deal. It's, it's shooting themselves in the foot. And I strongly, strongly, strongly discourage 
this approach and it's best to just pick one broker you're comfortable with, who's experienced in what you're looking to do and work with that broker. And that's it. And now we're going to take a quick break to hear from one of our sponsors. Hey guys, I just want to take a quick moment here and pause the podcast to introduce you to one of my favorite contractors, John from Blackjack Contracting Inc. And he has been serving the Niagara, Hamilton and Brantford areas for the past three years and has become the area's legal basement suite renovation specialist. He works with many investors that I know and some newer investors, some more experienced investors, and he converts single family homes into multiple units, as well as my favorite strategy, the Burr strategy. So he's well-versed in those as well to make sure that we can achieve the maximum value of the property and the maximum ARV. He has also completed over 100 units from Brantford to Niagara Falls, and everywhere in between as well. They do everything from permitting to the design to the final cleaning before listing our rentals for rent or for sale. And he's also a fully licensed electrical contractor. He's certified with ESA and he will take jobs of all sizes. So no job is too big. He's done a complete guts really from the ground up. So super impressed with his work and what he's been doing for fellow investors that I know as well. So if you wanted to reach out, his website is blackjack contractinginc.ca and you can ask him whatever questions you have. You can also reach out to him Instagram, which is at Blackjack Contracting Inc. And like he says, he knows that investing feels like the biggest gamble of our lives. So when you have Blackjack on your side, the house always wins. I will also add that there is currently a ban as of April 4th on new permits. So he will still actively work to the law's extent and actively work with investors to get projects planned out for when the ban is lifted. So that way you're not necessarily waiting and waiting and waiting. So guys, 100%, I recommend Blackjack contracting. I will say that finding the right contractor is sometimes a hassle and getting a good one that works with investors that understands the numbers is going to be critical in our success, especially when doing the Burr strategy. And now back to the show. Yeah, I do agree. And then maybe just some insights for somebody that's just starting out, maybe just interview like two or three of them and then just see which one you gel with the most, because I agree with you. You don't want to be mixing deals. And then all of a sudden, you know, you've got like half a deal done with one broker and then you're, you're switching it over. It can definitely be a, a big mess, but like, for example, like you have access to a ton of lenders. So, you know, when you are picking a mortgage broker, you do want to make sure that they've worked with investors, investors that have scaled up. Like it's not like they're just used to doing one, two or three properties. Cause I, I probably, many people can do that, but not many people have the relationships to really help scale a portfolio with 10, 20, 30 plus properties, mix, mix of commercial, a mix of like potentially borrowing private money. Like there's a whole, like you said, art to, to it. And the more complex that it gets, the more you're going to want somebody that's going to be able to grow with you, you know, like you and your team, Delia. Yeah, sir. I agree. So what is number six? Number six is not fully disclosing information to your mortgage broker. And this is key. Okay. So here's the thing. Let's say a client owns several properties in different cities. Some of these properties show up on the credit report. Some don't show up on the credit report. Some clients think, okay, I should just talk about the properties that are showing on my credit reports. Uh, maybe some of the properties are held in a corporation um, and they're not showing on the credit report or they're with lenders that don't report on the credit bureau. So 
some clients may say, you know what, I just need to talk about what's showing on my credit. Well, what happens is uh, some lenders will do a title search and they will come across a property that was not disclosed. And when that happens, that is very bad. It's not good. <laughs> it's not good for the client. It's not good for the lender. It's not good for the broker. So I strongly encourage everybody to disclose everything to their broker, okay? What's in a corp? What's showing on the credit? What's not showing on the credit? What's with a JV partner? What's held, you know, on their own? Even things that are held overseas, disclose it to your mortgage broker. And let your mortgage broker do what they do best, package the deal, present it in a way to the lender that makes sense for what you're looking to do. But disclosure in this industry is key. Okay, don't try to work the system by, you know, saying certain things and not saying certain things. No, say it as it is mm-hmm. and work with a professional to help you. Well, because I think the difference is like, as a mortgage broker, you, you kind of work for the client, which is us, the investor, right? More so than almost somebody at the bank, which the bank hires and, and that person likely has, has the banks, you know, as, as the top top of mind. But I think from a mortgage broker, not that you don't, you don't care about the bank, but I, I think the relationship is first and foremost between the investor and yourself. So it is important yes. that, you know, any mortgage broker yourself, including your team, have that information and, and then you can kind of pick and choose. Cause sometimes we even go to the bank and we talk ourselves out of deals by saying too much <laughs> say that they've got an Airbnb while there's a way to position these things. Uh, you know, you probably don't want to be getting a straight no from the bank. Cause you've told them that you want to Airbnb this. There are ways to massage it. There's ways to work with a broker to like, not lie, but you know, the information that is, is asked provide that. And at some point, you don't need to provide everything. This is so much easier to just work with a broker that knows what to disclose um, based on the questions that are asked. And that's it. Yeah. Disclosure is everything. Awesome. awesome. So what is the next one? So I think we're at number seven. We're is at that- number seven. Yes. We're at the last one. Number seven is about timing deals. So real story here. True story. Someone comes to us and says, I am going to buy three properties and I'm thinking, um, you know, I want to buy them all obviously. And uh, you guys tell me how I'm going to finance them. So we help him develop a financing roadmap and we talk about how we're going to close the first purchase, the second purchase, the third purchase. And the third purchase happens to be a B lender deal. So he's getting like good rates on the first two, the third one, his ratios are a little bit higher and therefore he's going to have to deal with a little bit of a higher interest rate. So the investor says, okay, um, well, mm, how about this? How about this uh, strategy? Uh, He calls it strategy. I don't call it strategy, but he calls it strategy. How about this? We close these three deals simultaneously with different banks uh, and close them all, you know, at the same time. Uh, This way I can get better rates. My answer is no, no, this is not the way to close deals. Um, you can go to different banks and tell them each, you know, you're closing one deal and get each approved. Uh, number one, it's fraud. Number two, here's what's going to happen in the long run. And this is why investors need to think beyond the current state, beyond the current moment. They need to think about the long-term implications. So assume he goes to these three lenders and finances his deals. 
Later on, of, of course, this investor is going to continue to grow. When he goes back to these lenders, the lenders are going to look at historical purchases, when they were purchased. And they will obviously note that there were purchases that happened around the same time they individually financed the deals. That's going to raise a flag, okay? Mm -hmm. That's going to raise a flag. So instead of trying to time the system or, you know, not disclose certain things, go with disclosure, go with the proper process, sleep at night, <laughs> protect your reputation, do it the right way, don't and work with the right professionals. That's a real story. And thankfully, this investor, you know, saw my point and financed the deals the, the way we recommended it. But that's what's called timing the deals. Okay. Don't do that. Don't try to time. <laughs> do At the end of the day, the banks are very, very smart. And even if they don't find out right away, they will find out the next time around that you need them for something. <laughs> yeah, guys, you know, it's uh, think beyond today. Think about the future. Absolutely. So those are your seven and they were very insightful. Thank you for sharing them. Seven dumb ways to die in real estate financing. Um, thank you for sharing those. Dahlia, what do you think is, you know, the future of for 2022 from a financing standpoint, any insights or anything that you can share? Yes. Um, so rates obviously is the big topic right now. And we know that rates will go up. The question is, when will they go up? A lot of predictions say that the Bank of Canada will raise variable rates by half a point to 1% this year. Obviously, the last uh, meeting, there was a lot of expectation. There, there were many expectations that they're going to raise, and they didn't. Um, I still believe that they the, the rates will rise this year. The question is, when? So on that note, for real estate investors, doesn't mean that everyone needs to go and rush into fixed rates and lock rates because I'm a big fan of variable rates for real estate investors for a simple reason, flexibility and recycling equity and continuing to grow. And if you were to take a fixed rate today compared to a variable rate, the differential is about one and a half percent, if not a little higher. So there is quite a bit of runway for variable rates to grow. In terms of real estate activity, um, I mean, we're still seeing a lot of activity across in Ontario, and uh, yes, it's a tougher market right now, um, but investors are still active and they're still finding ways to pick up properties through, you know, knocking on doors or developing like farming areas or um, de developing relationships with the sellers themselves, they're still finding ways beyond just going through MLS. But it is, it is a tough market and I think it's gonna continue to be a challenging market for 2022 because there isn't enough inventory. But because we deal with a lot of investors and we see different areas, there are, there are still deals and investors are still making money. They have to get a little bit more creative, I would say, though, with respect to how they're going to add value to the property. Because if you're just looking at a regular buy and hold, it's, it's hard to break even our cash flow in some of the major markets right now, unless you go further away or unless you do something with the property. Mm -hmm, absolutely. And I like that you mentioned, you know, thinking outside the box a little bit and not necessarily relying on the MLS because that's where you're going to still have, I mean, at this point of recording, like 10 and 20 offers on, on exactly. deals and competing with other investors, but also 
you know, homeowners as well looking and <laughs> it's, it's I think that, that the inventory, like I've never seen since I've started investing such low inventory. And so obviously that with the, you know, all the money printing and all that stuff, but do you foresee, you know, the housing market and then nobody really knows, but I guess, you know, you, you share what your thoughts are, if you wouldn't mind, do you think that we're going to keep going up, you know, in 2022 uh, 2023, 2024, or do you first see that there might be a little bit of a softening or, or a downright crash? I, I mean, I'll, I'll put all the options out there. <laughs> let me, let me consult with my Oracle and I will get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> Crystal ball. <laughs> Nobody has this prediction, but here's, here is my thinking. Okay. And again, this is not the crystal ball, but here's, here's my thinking. When interest rates are so low and people want to buy a property, they look at their monthly payment and they go, okay, you know what? I can afford this property. When the interest rate starts to go up, of course, affordability starts to, you know, um, go lower. Therefore, there, 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 there may be an impact on buying behavior as a result. Now, a lot of the properties we deal with are what we call mass market. So, below 800,000 for rental properties because I, an investor wouldn't go and buy a $2 million property and rent it up, right? Like they're 800, 900, maybe with a garden suite or multiple units outside of commercial. I'm talking residential. Mm -hmm. And a lot of first time home buyers are getting squeezed off the market and they're looking for ways to continue to qualify and buying something with a rental suite is helping with qualification. So in my view, that market up to, I would say, 900 will still see demand and pressure. Uh, and I don't expect a crash there or like a, any significant declines. I expect it to be stable. Maybe in the higher ticket items, we may see a reduction in price if um, affordability goes down significantly. But I don't see much change in 2022 for rental properties up to, you know, 9, 950. Okay. And, and I like that you, you broke it down with the, you know, the different categories in pricing. Cause you look back even at 2017 and uh, when I was buying in Brantford, some, you know, bottom thirds, not, not the ghetto, but like at the bottom third tier. And then you see all these like people that, uh, you know, they're closing on these like super like, you know, big houses or expensive condos in, in, you know, Oakville or whatnot. And back then when things shifted a little bit, those people got hurt more than yes. that were buying at the bottom tier and looking to do exactly. value adds. Exactly. It's not one brush, right? It's not one brush. And when the, um, when the 2018 stress test was introduced, right after actually the market was impacted and we saw an impact on appraised values for properties above the million and a half dollar mark again higher end properties mm -hmm. but the mass market product continued to you know to go and go and go yeah i did not feel anything those years and uh you know and this is why you buy for cash flow first and foremost and you buy for value as well um, yes. so Dahlia, so here's what we're going to do. Cause you've been on the show so many times. I'm going to switch up the lightning round questions, but you're still going to give me a quick answer. First thing that comes to mind. Are you ready to play? Uh oh, okay. Let's go. This week's lightning round is brought to you by Megan Chomut. If you're looking for a great financial advisor to add to your team who actually understands and incorporates real estate as part of your overall plan and gets your money working for you, you can reach out to Megan at meganchomut.com 
forward slash Sarah. And also she's offering for my podcast listeners to provide you with a free, customized, individualized 90-day game plan for getting ahead. So to get that, go to meganchomut.com forward slash Sarah. That's M-E-G-H-A-N-C-H-O-M-U-T.com forward slash Sarah. And now back to the show. I'm literally making these up as we go. So question number one, what is your, from what you're seeing, top two real estate investing strategies that you would suggest people consider in Ontario in 2022? Okay. A strategy that adds value to the property, whether that's the burst strategy or change of zoning, something that adds value to the property is the, the, the number one right now, because the prices have gone up, the, the rents have not caught as much. And that's the way to actually make better return on your investment in Ontario right now. All right. Question number two, your top three favorite markets right now. It could be anywhere. It could even be out of Canada. Ah, okay. So my top three favorite markets right now, um, Peterborough. Um, I still like Barry. And I would say these two right now. I don't have a third one. These are the two that um, yeah, okay. come to mind. All right. Question number three. Short-term, mid-term, or long-term rentals and why? Short-term, mid-term, or long-term rentals and why? Okay. So um, short-term rentals, I find there is an opportunity with short-term rentals right now, given the demand for you know, uh, vacation properties and people are honestly sick and tired of getting locked down and they want sometimes to, you know, enjoy different experiences. And there is an opportunity for short-term rentals depending on the location. Uh, I like it because um, it boosts your cash flow, uh, especially that the prices are high. If you want quick cash flow in a hot, you know, area that people want to rent in, you can do a short-term rental and improve your cash flow. I, however, don't like to put all eggs in one basket. I am not a big fan of, you know, following one trend and just putting everything into that bucket. So short-term rentals are hot or mid-term rentals are hot. Okay, great. But keep your long-term boring rentals, keep them, even if they're not, you know, like you've got to make sure that they're cash flowing a little bit. But even if that cash flow is not as attractive, in my view, it's still building wealth for you. And if for any reason, if you um, lose your short-term rentals because of whatever, like when the pandemic hit, you know, people got hit with short-term rentals. Temporarily, temporarily, some people got hit with short-term rentals in the, during the pandemic. You have to have a cushion to offset that. Don't put all of your eggs into one basket. Okay. All right. Great answer. Number four, in 2022, if somebody has $50,000, and this is a similar question, but I want to just say in today's uh, market, what is the best thing that they can do with that money if they want to start investing? $50,000 um, does not get you a full down payment right now. That's the, that's the reality, right? So what would you do with your $50,000? Um, I would focus on strategies that will help me grow that capital, okay, such as uh, you can get into private lending and grow the $50,000, or you can do a joint venture with another investor who has a 50,000 or something bigger and both of you buy a property. Um, these are the two things that come to mind. 
Okay. Until you grow up that capital base and then you can get into bigger things. Great answer. And final question, if it wasn't for real estate investing and you wanted to be invested in something, what would it be? If it wasn't for real estate? Yeah. So aside from real estate investing, what is your next favorite investment strategy? It could be paper, uh, gold, it could be... Dividend yielding stocks. That would be my next favorite. Okay. Awesome. Not, not uh, cryptocurrency. If, if that was the expected. <laughs> no, no. You know what? I, I don't have anything in crypto. I don't know anything about it. Maybe no. <laughs> just thought I'd switch it up on you today because I feel like you've been on my show for so long and like your answers, you've answered the, the lightning round many times. So thanks for playing the new lightning round. <laughs> a new one. Uh, Dahlia, where can people reach out if they wanted to uh, learn more and, and work with you and your team? Um, simple. People can email us at info at streetwisemortgages.com. One thing that we do amazingly well, guys, for clients is something called a financing roadmap. We're actually launching um, our new financing roadmap next week. Uh, and as an investor, you really don't want to grow a portfolio without it because this is what's going to give you the roadmap to how you're going to finance your deals going forward and will give you clarity. So um, that's coming up next week. And if anyone is interested in designing the financing roadmap, they can book a complimentary planning session, my team, uh, at info at streetwisemortgages.com. That is amazing. And I remember doing that with you. It was super valuable. So essentially, you know, where they're going, where they're going next, you know, based on their goals, how many they need to have all the good stuff, right? Yeah. So we, there are really eight building blocks of the financing roadmap. I'll just clarify them quickly. Um, one, we want to understand where you are as an investor right now. So we can decide how, like where we're going, right? We've got to understand where you are. Then we talk about your goals. How many properties are you looking to purchase? When are you looking to purchase them buy? And what are your financing goals? Then we help you look at everything related to money. How are we going to actually raise the money to help you build up the portfolio? We call this aligning your capital sources. We also look in the process, uh, through this process, about maximizing your borrowing power because we want to be very strategic about how we finance every deal so that we keep your approvals coming at the best cost of capital. And then we help you understand, okay, deal number one is going to look this way in terms of down payment, structure, mortgage terms, everything, deal number two, deal number three. We answer all of your questions. We share with you any dumb ways to die uh, or any pitfalls to avoid. And then we help you put your financing roadmap into action. And you go and implement. And once you hit the milestone, we sit down again, revise it and plan for the next round. So that's, that's the financing roadmap. That is amazing. So definitely folks on, you know, listening to this, if you haven't done it, it is super helpful. So reach out to Dahlia and her team at info at streetwisemortgages.com. Dahlia, thank you so much for coming on the show again. It's always a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for sharing all your insights and playing the new lightning round. Thank you, Sarah. Anytime. Hey guys, before you go, I wanted to ask you a question. What's stopping you from starting or growing your own real estate investment portfolio? I know for me, before I started, I had plenty of reasons and at the time they all seemed very valid, but as I started my journey, these reasons slowly fell away and eventually only one reason remained. 
What was actually stopping me was having a proven, actionable, repeatable system. I didn't have that. And the way that was going to change was by investing in myself, learning, listening, and looking for ways that worked. And also, most importantly, discovering what didn't and not making those mistakes again. Fast forward to today, I now have a proven, repeatable series of action steps that has enabled me to build my seven-figure portfolio consisting of multiple homes, and I'm able to manage that in two to three hours a month. Is that something that you would want? Well, I've actually taken all the knowledge I've accumulated and put that into a comprehensive step-by-step online program. It's called Rise, and it's a program that will help you from where you are now to where you want to be faster and with less of the headaches that I had. So it consists of all the templates and the resources that I use, plus over 40 instructional videos that you get lifetime access to for just a small one-time investment. And, you know, my recommendation is to make the time now to invest in yourself and grow your portfolio to seven figures so that you can bring your retirement dreams closer. If you want some more information about Rise, just go to sarahlarby.com forward slash R-I-S-E to access more details and book your spot. Thanks so much for listening to Where Should I Invest with your host, Sarah Larby. Make sure to listen in next time. We'll catch you on the next episode of Where Should I Invest.